California is known for wanting to go big on climate change and renewable energy. The state is now considering building wind farms off the coast and even toying with the idea of refining lithium for electric car batteries. But how do we achieve this without doing more harm to the environment? We'll have those Earth Day conversations and also talk about what's next for police reform in California. Welcome to California State of Mind from Cal Matters and Cap Radio. I'm Nicole Nixon. I cover politics for Cap Radio in Sacramento. And I'm Nigel Duara, inequality reporter for Cal Matters based in Los Angeles. And I'm filling in for my Cal Matters colleague, Elizabeth Aguilera. Welcome, Nigel. Thanks for coming on the show with me. So excited to have you and to talk about all things California with you over the next couple months. Before we dive into our conversation about some of California's latest environmental ideas, though, tell us a little bit about you, Nigel. What are you covering and what are you interested in as a reporter? Thanks, Nicole. Yeah, I'm happy to be here and a bit nervous. (laughs) I have been covering all kinds of stuff over about 15 years, from the police to the environment to the border, and now inequality in the nation's most unequal state. Well, I know we'll dive into so many of these topics in the coming months. Um, This week, though, as all eyes were on the Derek Chauvin trial, Nigel, the jury heard closing arguments and began deliberating on Monday. What was going through your head as somebody who has covered police in the courts when you learned that the jury already reached their verdict on Tuesday? It seemed kind of soon. It was a quick return jury. And to kind of set the stage, I'm in Echo Park in Los Angeles. We always have police helicopters. But on Tuesday, the LAPD called a tactical alert, which means we had a lot of police helicopters. And as people are waiting for the verdict, the police are literally there hovering over their shoulders. Now, covering these before, like you mentioned, the outcomes are usually that the grand jury declined to indict the police officer. The DA declined to press charges against the officer. And so rarely does it ever kind of reach a trial. And then, suddenly, we're hearing the verdict. We, the jury, in the above entitled matter as to count one, unintentional second-degree murder while committing a felony, find the defendant guilty. Now, when that was read, or a couple minutes before, I was on the verge of running out the door to cover protests and see the tear gas and see people pushing up against the police line. But instead, it was car horns and people in my neighborhood clapping. What about you, Nicole? What was Tuesday like for you? On Tuesday, I was at the state capitol covering this press conference by the Legislative Black Caucus, and they came out to push really strongly for a handful of bills, six, seven, ten bills dealing with police reform, because they had kind of mixed success last year, right? A few of these bills came up in, in the months following George Floyd's killing. The legislative session last year was just so wild because it was half virtual, Uh, It was cut short twice because of the pandemic and COVID just took up a lot of oxygen, right? So a couple of these bills passed, but the the big one um, didn't. And this is a bill that would uh, create a path to decertify police that are found to have abused their power or, you know, they're convicted of certain crimes and things like that. Well, this is something that's been on my mind a lot. And for you as a Capitol reporter, I'm really interested to hear the answer is the, the failure of those bills last year during, you know, right after the George Floyd protests, when you had the maximum amount of mobilization you're going to see. Still protests were going on at that time. They were debating these bills. That were actively happening while this was happening. Do you think the failure to pass those bills was 
people not wanting to vote for them? Was it political pushback or was it just a procedural issue? Because we're going to see them again. Yeah, I think it's a little bit of both, to be honest. I, I really do think the legislature was trying to respond to the pandemic first and foremost. Um, the police unions did mobilize against some of these bills. You just couldn't see it because the Capitol was closed to the public. So, you know, I had a lawmaker told me that the, the police unions were lighting up uh, legislators' phones and just texting them to oppose the bill. And the police unions told me that they didn't like the bills because they didn't think that they got enough vetting that you would get during a normal session. Senator Stephen Bradford, who's the chair of the Black Caucus, had this quote. The time is now for us to act. No more kneeling in social media posts. We've had enough of the performative acts. He really put his colleagues in the legislature on notice that these need to pass now. This is their big priority. Sure. When I look at this, I'm, I'm always struck by the difference between the theoretical pushback from police unions and from the folks who were, you know, supporting that side, I guess, and from people who are, you know, quote unquote, dealing with the police face to face every day, not quote unquote, they really are dealing with police face to face every day. And there seems to be a theoretical pushback from police saying, hey, this really deprives us of due process. We like the idea, but we don't really want to go for this full, full board. But at the same time, when it came to the carotid hold last year, right, which I think you covered, that passed very quickly. So what's the difference between legislating how police actually do their jobs versus legislating what the disciplinary action is going to be? That's a really good question. I think that that's something we'll see unfold and, and see how it turns out and on what bills the police unions decide to oppose and put their energy into fighting. There's another one this year, and I'm, I'll be really interested to see what the police groups have to say about this one. It would ban positional asphyxiation, which is basically any sort of hold that cuts off somebody's windpipe. And this is something that we've seen in in the George Floyd case. In There was another case in the Bay Area that didn't get a ton of attention over Christmas. And I could see the police unions coming out strong against this one because it, it would sort of ban any sort of tough restraint that they rely on. In some ways, it's interesting just to see the variety of bills and just the pure number that they have to push up against, right? Where, again, a while back, this may have been one or two, but now it's, I believe, 10. I wrote an article highlighting seven. There were a few more that I didn't get to, but yeah, there's there's a pretty big number. So we'll see. Another one just I think is pretty interesting is this one's run by Sacramento Assemblyman Kevin McCarty, and it would make local governments reveal how much money they spend annually on police settlements for use of force. Um, cases. He said that Sacramento police and sheriff department um, combined spent 30 million last year. And he said if the public just knew how big these numbers were, then the public themselves would put a lot more pressure on their own local police departments to be better. And that would is something that would could lead to more reforms down the road. It's fascinating to me that in the Capitol, although not surprising, that the sort of defund the police movement, to describe it broadly, hasn't made that big of a splash, at least again in the Capitol, not the city of Sacramento. Whereas in Los Angeles, where I am, it is, I would argue, the dominant narrative. It is at least the narrative being taken, you know, especially on social media and especially when the LAPD tweets, oh boy, mm -hmm. there's about 5,000 people <laughs> in their replies, you know, telling them all kinds of things. So, it's interesting to me that that hasn't necessarily yet reached the 
point in the Capitol where it's really a force to be reckoned with. Unless I'm misreading that. Maybe it is. Well, I think it's just that the police budgets are made at the local level that, you know, lawmakers don't can't take money away from the LAPD, but they can certainly run bills to try to put some more oversight onto them. The question I think becomes is, and I think this is a broader question to policing, is how do you legislate people's individual behavior Mm -hmm. without overriding their constitutional rights? You know what I mean? So is the state going to take a bolder stance? I guess these bills are a great way to find out where we are in a litmus test for really what the electorate thinks, or at least the people they elected to do it, think. For sure. Coming up, California's Imperial Valley could supply a huge portion of materials for electric car batteries. Some are calling it California's potential white gold rush. Stay tuned for more California State of Mind. It's California State of Mind from CAP Radio and Cal Matters. I'm Nicole Nixon. And I'm Nigel Duara. With all the news of the Derek Chauvin verdict, you may have forgotten we have Earth Day this week. Nicole, did you get out there? Did you get out in nature? I have been pretty bad about getting out in nature since the lockdowns, I have to admit. So, but I am gardening. So there's that. (laughs) Of course, you know, the policy nerd in me is thinking about California's climate goals They are pretty ambitious, Nigel. Like, did you know that by 2045, all energy has to come from renewable sources? So when you say all energy, we're talking about all the things that you want to do in life that require power. So every time you turn on your lights, run your washing machines, play a video game, it's all going to come from renewable resources. Is that right? Mm Mm-hmm. Really? Yeah, that's right. And when we talk about renewable sources, we're talking about stuff like solar, water, and wind. My former CAP Radio colleague, Ezra David Romero, who recently followed the breeze back to the Bay for a job at KQED, spent some time reporting on California's quest to harness the power of offshore wind. We do have wind in these mountain passes like Tehachapi or near the coast or out in the desert, Mm -hmm. but we don't have any out on the ocean. And California's ocean is, the coastline is really, really, really windy. And so there's this untapped resource out there on the ocean. And so the big idea is to harness that. Well, how many turbines would the state need to get the amount of energy that they want? I spoke with Mohit Chabra with the National Resources Defense Council. He studies wind energy there. And he said we'd need about 800 to 900. And you'd have to have them spanned out over about 800 to 900 miles. So that's almost the entire California coastline. That's why the idea is to have them around Morro Bay, Diablo Canyon, Humboldt, the Oregon border. You'd have these pockets of them all throughout the coast of California. Yeah, but it sounds like it wouldn't just be like a line, like there's one every mile all the way down the state coastline. There'd be like little clusters. Yeah, I think the idea is to have them spread out, you know, in these concentrated locations. There's a lot of things at risk out on the ocean, right? You have marine life, you have birds, you have the Mm. fishing industry, you have the military that uses part of the coastline for Mm. training. And that's actually been one of the hindrances in the central coast is that the military has pushed back in the past years about 
exploring those waters for this kind of work because they do this training out there. And Karen Douglas with the California Energy Commission, when I spoke to her, brought that up. But she said she's hopeful because of the Biden administration has promised that it wants to boost wind energy and offshore wind energy. So she thinks maybe that pushback will go away. I I wanted to ask you about the turbines themselves. You know, you see these groups of them, like you mentioned, along the coast and other parts of the state. What are the differences between floating turbines and the ones that are stuck in the ground? Are there design differences? The main difference is just what they're sitting on. When you go to the Tehachapi Pass and you see all those giant wind turbines lining the mountains that are static and, you know, sort of moving and sort of beautiful and like sort of like almost complementary to the mountainside – It'll be the same out in the ocean, but these are on giant pontoons. It's an idea actually taken from the oil and gas industry. So it's maybe sort of this redemptive quality as well around climate (laughs) change, right? Like the whole point we're in a climate crisis is because of carbon. So if you think about how big these things are, you know, they can be 10, 20 stories tall. The blades of them are about half that length. And then the platforms have to be bigger than that, right, to sustain them. And then they also have to weather storms and ocean currents and all those kind of things. So they're just going to, it's going to be kind of cool. And the whole idea behind this is to have 24 seven renewable energy in California that can be used immediately, right? It's being created out on the coast 24 seven because wind doesn't stop like the sun does, you know, Mm -hmm. and then it can fuel your home or energize Mm -hmm. your home pretty immediately. Yeah. Well, talk to me about some of the concerns about wildlife, because that's always a major issue with these kinds of projects. There is some concern about birds, I would say, first and foremost. You know, these are going to be about 20 to 30 miles off the coast. So they're they're not going to be like, you're not going to stand on the edge of the ocean and then see them all. The main concern isn't about necessarily the birds in California, per se, you know, the ones that are close to the shore where there's just like a lot of biodiversity. It's more about the ones that are migrating in from Asia or other places. Mm. Um, so there is some concern there. But when I talked to Audubon, California and the National Audubon Society, Gary George, he studies wind energy for them. He was telling me that climate change is posing a greater risk to birds and wildlife than wind turbines will. Like, oh, that's really interesting. Yeah. He said 389 bird species in North America are set to go extinct or are predicted to go extinct because of climate change. I think, I can't remember the exact time, 2100 or something like that. And then marine life, there's it's it's similar. They There's a lot to be still understood about that, all that. And then the other thing that's sort of connected to marine life is fishermen, right? California is a coastal state. There's a big fishing industry here. So they'll have to work with fishermen about this as well. Well, there's this bill out to plan for it, right? What are the next steps and like how long could it take for some of these turbines to actually go up? There's this assembly member, David Chu. He's from San Francisco. He's a Democrat. He introduced a bill that would set a goal of producing 10 gigawatts of power from wind energy by 2040 and would also create short-term goals of three gigawatts of power from offshore wind by 2030. The most immediate next step is that the California Energy Commission would have until June 2022 to come up with a plan of how to reach that target. So if it becomes law this year, they'll have about not quite a full year to figure out how to make it work. 
Ezra David Romero, thank you so much for schooling us on offshore wind and all of the challenges it will bring. You're welcome. So you might be wondering, like I did when Ezra mentioned it, how much energy do we actually get from wind? And how significant is 10 gigawatts of power in the grand scheme of things? Well, according to Ezra, that would be enough power for about 3 million homes. And in 2019, wind energy made up almost a third of California's renewable energy portfolio. So these turbines could end up generating quite a bit of power out there off the coast. And these projects may get an additional boost from the Biden administration. In March, they announced a goal to double the country's offshore wind production by 2030. Now, some researchers believe it could be possible for the state to get to 100% of energy from offshore wind in the next few decades. But how would all of that power be stored? For that, we travel east, about as far away from the Pacific coast as you can get while still staying in California, the Imperial Valley. Salton Sea is this beautiful, austere region that you know, doesn't cuddle up to you very easily. That's Julie Cart. She covers the environment for Cal Matters. She recently reported a story about a global commodity found deep under the ground in this beautiful, austere region and its potential in California's quest to combat climate change. Welcome to California State of Mind, Julie. My pleasure, Nicole. So this is a story about climate change and technology, but it's also very much about a place. Just describe the Salton Sea region for us. You also call it the Lithium Valley. What would one of our listeners see as they drive through this area? Well, your listeners would have to head out to nowhere and and then you'd find it. (laughs) Uh, It's in the corner of the state right on the the Mexican border and the Salton Sea is in uh, this depression. It's a valley that that you really can't see because it's so flat. It's ag land. You've got two lane blacktops just weaving through alfalfa fields, cattle and livestock operations. And then the Salton Sea, which is, it's the largest lake in California. It's 350 square miles. So it's, it's just flat, kind of shimmery, very shallow. And then you have geothermal plants that really are all you have as a horizon. These are these um, renewable energy plants that just uh, look like this incongruous industrialization in the middle of a really very rural part of the state. Okay, well, another thing that is in heavy supply there is lithium, right? Tell us about what lithium is, how it would be used. Lithium is, some people call it white gold. It is one of those things everybody wants in the world right now. This is, it's a commodity like uranium and and gold and things like that. Lithium is used in a kind of a battery, lithium ion batteries, very ubiquitous, cell phones, Uh, lots of huge batteries also. So lithium is one of the things that are found in in the ground that come up in this brine, this salty water, this fluid that comes out. And it can be extracted like cobalt, like zinc. There's just a ton of stuff in there. So the brine's already coming up. So these manufacturers, these companies say, look, this is great. Here's a by, what, what might be a byproduct that we'd have to deal with. Let's extract it 
it has to be refined a couple times to get the lithium that is used for battery grade material. But it's just, it, it's kind of this cool closed system. You have a plant that creates energy or electricity. So that plant, which is already bringing up the lithium in this brine can power the additional processes to extract the lithium. So it's a pretty cool idea. And the other aspect of the lithium that's available in California is it's not mined. For the most part around the world, lithium is mined. It is an extremely environmental degrading process. The lithium that comes from California can be branded as like a green source of lithium. So people can feel a little bit better about where it comes from and how it's mined. So it, it's, it fits in really well with California's aesthetic, I guess. Yeah. Well, in the amount of this, too, we're talking about they th- believe it could be a third of the world's lithium, which is just an enormous amount. Um, so California is trying to help these companies out, right, by providing grants to get them to extract it. What does the state stand to gain if this is successful and we are able to sort of cleanly extract this much lithium? Well, it's not unusual for the state, and in this case also the federal government, to provide seed money and grant to inc- grants to encourage an industry that it finds dovetails nicely with public policy. Well, it certainly happens with oil and gas every day. It's happened with solar. So the state wants to encourage us for a number of reasons. One, as you mentioned, climate change. This works well with California's interest in weaning our state off of fossil fuels and moving to renewable energy. And lithium, people believe, will play a huge role in battery storage. So we produce all this clean electricity but it's ephemeral. So when the sun goes down, we don't have solar. When the wind stops blowing, we don't have wind generated energy. So, but we have a lot of it when we have it, but we need to store it. So the the, the vision for the state is that inexpensive, uh, plentiful lithium that comes from California can help California's utilities and others store, come up with the batteries that we can store this power. It also, in the region, officials see this as a possible generator of employment. There's a lot of space out there that is not expensive. So there could be a supply chain. Why not build the batteries out there? Why not build the, the electric car plants so the batteries can go in the electric cars and on and on. So it's part of a, a big vision to encourage uh, an economic boom, hopefully to a region that's that's pretty much in desperate plight. Yeah, well, this is already a region that has a lot going on environmentally. Are there any drawbacks or environmental concerns to doing this there? Well, the, it's there. Are, we don't know is the quick answer. There are some issues with lithium plants. There are air emissions. There is waste that is generated. We don't really know. It shouldn't be a big problem, but but again, until it's actually appears in the world as it does on paper, we won't really know. Mm. Well, how do the people who live and work in the Salton Sea area feel about these plans? Do they have concerns about uh, outside interests coming in, you know, promising to transform this area again, potentially leaving it worse than it is now? 
Yeah, there's a long history and colorful history in California of people going out to the desert with big ideas and and selling their big ideas and getting buy-in and then they go bust or walk away or other things happen. I, I think there's a lot of excitement about anything that might improve public health or uh, employ people. From an efficiency standpoint, the nice thing about geothermal plants is, is they don't employ a lot of people. So if you're in that business, that's, it's a pretty streamlined process. But this most certainly will employ more people, building trades for a number of years. I mean, you can, you can just see how this, this might uh, trickle down in the economy. But the folks I talked to for the CalMatters story uh, they are very excited about the possibility of employment and, and particularly high employment because they're the educated kids. There's this huge brain drain. Everyone's leaving. So they would love to have engineers and scientists and researchers and folks like that stay in the region. But their number one priority is health. And they are in such a deficit uh, in the region that they're just a little skeptical and they'll believe it when they see it that there is no harm done by this process. Well, Julie Cart covers the environment for CalMatters. Thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure, Nicole. That's wild that a third of the world's lithium for all these batteries could eventually come from the Imperial Valley. Exactly. You know, Julie also mentioned to me that there had been other plants for the Salton Sea decades ago that didn't work out. It turned into this man-made ecological disaster, and now people there have health problems like asthma because of all the dust. So hopefully these residents are not screwed over yet again. And that's California State of Mind for this week. Thanks for joining us. Next week, the California Supreme Court ruled that you can't keep people behind bars simply because they can't afford to post bail. We talked with State Senator Bob Hertzberg about his work to reform the cash bail system. That's all for now, Nicole. See you next time, Nigel. Take care. California State of Mind is a collaboration of Cal Matters and Cap Radio. It's edited by Tess Vigland and produced by Jen Picard. Sally Schilling is our executive producer. Mark Jones is the technical director. Chris Hagen is our digital editor. Margarita Noriega and Chris Bruno are our masters of marketing. Our social media is run by Emmy Gilbert and Courtney Fong. Nick Miller is editor at Cap Radio and Joe Barr is our chief of content. Dave Lesher is editor at Cal Matters. Our theme song is Mellifera Ligustica by Isaac Joel. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. You'll get notified every Friday of a new episode. That's all for now. Thanks for listening to California State of Mind. See you next week. Support for California State of Mind comes in part from Sierra Nevada Brewing Company and from Sutter Health. Sutter Health.